In those days, I called John Perkins, and some of you may know of a rights leader, was quoting Lao Tzu, go to the people, live with them, learn from them, love them, start with what they know, build with what they have. But we're the best leaders. When the work is done, the task accomplished, people will say, we've done it ourselves. Welcome to season three of the Surrender podcast. I'm Craig Petty. And I'm Charlene Bella Santos. Together, we're the directors of Surrender, a collective of people and organizations carrying a message to motivate, support, and equip us to live out the radical call of Jesus amongst the margins. In this podcast, we're providing a platform for conversation and storytelling, as we hear from some friends who embody this message. While we might not always agree with everything we hear from one another, what we desperately want to do is create a space to listen and to learn and to find Jesus in the centre of it all. This episode is full of stories of radical surrender as we catch up with Ash and Ange Barker. They tell the founding story of Urban Neighbours of Hope, the Surrender Conference. They talk about becoming neighbours in a Bangkok slum and now life as urban missionaries in the UK at Winston Green, an inner-city Birmingham public housing estate, to seek transformation through Jesus there. I first met the two of you when I was, I must have been 14 or 15, and you were just launching UNO, and you came to my home church, and you you told a story about what you're up to and so on, and it's all probably a little bit over my head, but it sounded inspiring and slaves rolled up getting in the midst of the neighborhood and putting jesus into action so it came across to a young teenager so can can you go back to those early days of you know and then describe how surrender came about as a part of that as well sure uh yeah i mean uh we and i both stood up at a tony campolo meeting uh it's called uh, radical discipleship and giving our lives for christ no matter what the cost we were both the 18 then uh Ange thought she was going to go to Haiti I thought I was going to go to China where we met wow. uh, six months later and uh fell madly in love and got married as 20 year olds and uh and we did think we would go overseas um at some point but uh we had a, a missionary couple who said you know look you know what have you got to offer <laughs> you're 20 years old you know Try, try. Why there's lots of people in cross-cultural settings here. The world's mm. coming to Melbourne. Why don't you kind of get involved and and see what you have to offer? Um, and it was really good advice. And uh, we started working with Youth for Christ, working in prisons, mainly youth detention centres, um, and uh, and quickly found that we needed to not just pick up the pieces at the bottom of the cliff, but go up, go up to the top and try and could we prevent young people from getting in the system could we go back to the communities where people were coming from because they weren't coming from every community they were just coming from a few Hmm. and uh and so we relocated in um 92 end of 92 into springvale and uh at that time springvale was quite challenging kind of place uh it was it was magnificent for us like it was one of those places where you would you engage with Vietnamese refugees and Cambodians and China, the East Timorese. I mean, every, every kind of culture under the sun was there and every global issue was kind of on your doorstep. And so it was just such a privilege to, to live and serve there for over 10 years. 
um, as part of that kind of initial impulse was the churches in the areas really didn't like the young people we were working with or their families and the families and young people we were working with really didn't like the churches in the area. <laughs> Uh, and so we were kind of uh, forced, really. It wasn't uh, to, to plant churches and um, and raise up local leaders. In those days, uh, a guy called John Perkins, and some of you may know of a civil rights leader, uh, was quoting Leo Tassou, go to the people, live with them, learn from them, love them, start with what they know, build with what they have. But with the best leaders, when the work is done, the task accomplished, the people will say, we've done it ourselves. And... Uh, and so Urban Neighbours of Hope was really uh, an impulse to be in solidarity with people, to, to relocate, to, um, to see change come from the ground up. And so 93 is when we started um, uh, um, Urban Neighbours of Hope. Uh, it was um, initially really just in lots of ways an extension of a youth organisation and we kind of blew through staff and volunteers really quickly <laughs> in the first couple of years. And honestly, in our neighbourhoods, we were quite fragile and quite vulnerable. We realised we needed to have a more sustainable model and started looking around, made connection with a group called Interchange or a Christian order among the poor. Mm. And uh, and we, we, we really then went for a kind of wineskin that would be durable and sustainable in difficult places of discipleship and um, became... Yeah, it took three years to become a member of UNO. Uh, we had a common rhythm of life, including Sabbaths and supervision monthly. And We had a uh, dalliance um, with uniforms. Which really? Really. <laughs> so <laughs> we were looking at, you know, how, you know, that kind of whole idea around if you're a homeless person on the streets in the city of Melbourne, you would see someone in a Salvation Army uniform <laughs> or a priest and, and you would know there's somebody safe to help you. So we were thinking about how can we be like that. We experimented with sort of... Um, contextualization so the guys had really long hair and then shaved it off and tried to look like Buddhist monks and I'm really glad the, we were too vain to stick with the uniform thing. <laughs> the, the, only, the only uniform thing we ended up really with was we all got this Celtic cross tattooed on our arm and we yeah. thought we were so cool having our Celtic cross and then we met Steve Barrington and he showed us <laughs> a big ass one that takes up <laughs> <laughs> Our little Celtic crosses, <laughs> that, you know, uh, yeah, came out Celtic crosses. I think we called yeah. it, yeah. But so no, we you were, we kind of tried to push the boat out as far as mm. we could and take if Jesus is real and what he said is follow me and do as I did. How can we mm. take that to the most radical extreme and and do that? You know, we were pretty sincere and and I remember one of our guys he sold everything he had and gave it to the poor. That just meant that he had to borrow all of our stuff all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Start but getting some of his own stuff back again. But you know, I think those were the days where everything was on the table, really, wasn't it? And we were like, how can we also, as I'm a trained social worker, and I remember seeing a lot of my Christian friends go down that route, start off as full on Christians who want to see people led to Jesus, and then end up leaving their faith altogether and becoming really good at what they did. And so we're like, well, that can happen to all of us. How do we keep? The main thing, the main thing at the centre, mm -hmm. and so um, groups like the Jesuits and Franciscans, we looked into, you know, what sustained their core charism mm -hmm. was the term that we used at the time, and so how Ash, Ash talks about that wine skin or container, how could we build something around us that would hold us accountable and ensure that we didn't become our own worst enemies? I think in later years, as people joined us, those things, the rules and the the, the rhythm of life that we set, that was freeing for us. Uh, became quite restrictive for other people because they didn't help form it and it was kind mm. of imposed. 
but I think that's part of that whole journey as an order of you know um but I think at the beginning of it, it was all about, we just want to be as radical as we could and make sure that we spent the, you know, we had this whole thing about how do we make sure that the poor and our neighbours get the best of our time, not the end of our day. So we had a kind of a division and we still do that kind of um, naturally in this community, mm. a third of our time in the neighbourhood, always making sure that happens, a third of our time in partnerships. So for me, that means volunteering or working with groups within the neighbourhood and then a third of our time in partnerships and discipleship and worship um, because so often you know we found it living in the slum in Thailand you can live in a slum with 100,000 people but you can still hardly have anything to do with the poor because mm. yep. middle-class western people you can fill your life up really quickly yeah so um so I think that continues to be some really good advice we got in the early days because that's still true here in in Birmingham and Windsor Green, we can be so busy doing good things that we don't have any time to be responsive to those most poor and most marginalised. And and so, yeah, that was some good kind of lessons we had about having those containers around us in the early days and what ultimately led to us being out of journey long-term with the same kind of values. Mm. Mm. That's great. And it shows the role of experimentation in missional life. So how do you go about discovering what's going to stick and what principles or practices you'll retain in across that whole journey? And and how do you work out when something just needs to be dropped, like a uniform idea? Yeah. <laughs> we call it, it's a very technical theological term I call splatter painting. I don't know if they still do that in Australia. But we really just, and, you know, as new people join us even now, we say have a go at everything. Mm-hmm. But hold that loosely. And John Smith actually was the person that really helped us in the early days about not attaching our our self-worth to our projects and holding mm-hmm. projects lightly. And I, I don't know who we, we all our good ideas we've stolen, but somebody mm-hmm. said the mission and the method are two Dar- different Darryl things. Gardner. That was Daryl yeah. Gardner, yep, yep. surrendery. <laughs> and um and that's so often that we get confused with. So if my program is at the moment working with people in hostels and homeless guys, um if that is my mission and then all of a sudden our neighbourhood changes, which it's likely to as these hostels are being closed down and suddenly there are no more homeless guys in our community or people in hostels, then suddenly my whole ministry is gone. But actually that's just a method. My mission mm. is to see lives and communities transformed by, by Christ in this neighbourhood mm. and then the methods will change according to the needs of the community and and our resources and what works and what doesn't work. And I think that's really helped. You have a go at everything and some things work, some things don't, but you're not devastated by that because your mission is unchanged. It's just the methods. So we had things, I can give an example. A few years ago, we started a group um, called Stitch and Bitch. I was apparently (laughs) very good at the second part, not good at the first. group of women I was supporting coming out of prison and they wanted to start this group and we have a high value on trying to get the people with the needs to start the projects and run it and then we join as a member of that group and try to keep everyone from beating each other up or whatever goes on and um you know and that was a hard sell when you go and speak in churches that one of our big projects is stitch and bitch I was very (laughs) glad when it stopped (laughs) over time those women all got rehoused so we Mm. could keep going with that group or we could just say, well, there's not a need anymore. And mm. then what is the need that is before us now? And what do you as a community, what, you know, us as a community really want to do? And just recently we had that with our Flavours of Winston Green. We started a, about 
five years ago, we had so many refugees and asylum seekers living in the community who were not allowed to work. Mm. And they were sitting at home really depressed and they would gather at our house with their children after school. And we got talking about what they had to offer. And they were all great cooks. And Ash and I don't cook, which is the real reason we live in communities. <laughs> so secrets we said, out now. Yeah, secrets <laughs> out. You can only move in if you, you know, oh, yeah, we like that food. In you come. Um, <laughs> So we um, started this thing called Flavours of Winston Green and it was, again, about something good coming from our neighbourhood, which is famous for having a big prison right in the middle of it and famous for one of these TV, a bit like Howzo's, one of those mockumentary-type shows that just mm. makes fun of the poor. So we're trying to raise up what are the good things in our neighbourhood. So it was a mobile cooking school teaching cooking from whichever refugee or asylum seeker person we had available. So I would mm. get a job on a Friday and I'd see who was around on Tuesday and then we bring everything and then people cook their own food as taught by my lady from Yemen or my friend from Afghanistan or one of the Pakistani ladies and you do a three-course dinner and so we ran that for years and and we also got around in England they have very strict payment in kind laws so I couldn't even let you know, I used to think, well, they do the cooking and then their kids can come on all the trips we run for free. But apparently that's against the law in the UK. Mm. So we discovered a volunteering program that they were running across London where you signed up as a member and for your volunteering, you could earn these reward points online. And um, that's not payment in kind. So right. we met kids in South Africa who had invented this online rewards pro platform, amazing technology. They've since won the Google New Tech of the Year Award and they've got too big for us now, but they designed <laughs> this project where our, I would put the jobs up. The ladies who were members could volunteer for the jobs. They'd get a certain amount of what was called slotto, which is the check word for uh, um, gold. And then the slotto could be spent on our online points, shop, yeah. um, which was like the local halal butcher, mm -hmm or the local milk bar or Tesco's for milk and bread, and we weren't breaking any laws. So we did this, you know, it was a great program. We really invested in it. We felt really proud being able to run it. And also what it would build is a CV for these ladies. So when they finally got their right to stay in the country, and for many of them it's been, you know, six, eight, nine years it takes, mm. um, they were employable because they had ample referees and you know, three-page CV of job experience. But um, just after lockdown, about six weeks ago, we took a job in Oxford and we went down and it was really hard to get any women to do the job. And then I realised that they all had their work rights and we had employed most of them in other jobs. And so they no longer needed this Flavours of Winston Green. But all the customers and the church groups that use us and that, they really wanted us to continue. But I thought, we don't need to keep doing this because the need that originally was there is no longer there. And so we made the call and we've just knocked back another three, three jobs. And people are like, oh, that's so sad. And, and then we realise it becomes about us and about the mm. church and not actually about the needs of the community. So shutting down the program is not a failure. That's a really great celebration that it's no longer needed as a response because lives have already been transformed. And, yeah, so it's holding those mission and the method kind of separately and loose, holding the method loosely and the mission tightly is what's helped. I think the other th thing that we do a bit of is you kind of take a, you take a punt on something, but it's mm. calculated. So, so Change Makers is our Emerging Leaders program. We thought it could work, mm. uh, but we said, okay, I'll put a day a week into it and we'll put 5,000 quid into it for the first year. If we can make it work, um, fantastic. If we can't make it work, well, you know, we've lost 5,000 quid in a, in a day's work, you know, it's not a, um, 
it's not a big thing. Actually, it's become one of our most exciting things that we do, seeing um, young leaders um, nominated from local communities and they pitch their idea for change after three residentials um, to a, like a resource panel. And, uh, and it's fantastic. Like it, it's a, we're on our fifth cohort now, but you kind of make some calculations. You say, what is, what is this? If we lost it all, is that okay? You know, and, and we, you know, for 5,000 a day's work, that, that is now we don't always calculate like that, but I, I think you do have to, we've have been in times where the whole team have been chasing around one person. <laughs> it's like, you know, we've got 24 seven kind of, care from 10 people and <laughs> you kind of say well i'm not sure this is sustainable for anybody and actually we're missing out on a whole lot of other things that we could be doing so so you, you do have to make some calls i think around experimenting for long enough to get a good evaluation for it but also evaluating whether whether think contexts are changing and um and is this is this the right mission the the why of it is really important and if you can keep that central the mission of it your methods and the way you go about it can, can keep changing and it not be a not be a big blow to our egos and uh, funding whatever else but um but yeah it's, it is easier said than done because you can attach yourself to what you're doing really quickly and um and to hold our ego apart from what's happening is difficult um, I mean, obviously, in 2002, we moved to, to Klontoy, which was mm. like the, still the biggest slum in Bangkok, in Thailand. And uh, a lot of what we learned in Australia, we thought we'd just be able to transfer it directly across. And there were some things that we could. There were, I mean, there were the, the, the poverty as a lack of freedom to live the kind of life God intends people to live, that kind of definition of poverty became very real very quickly. And it wasn't just about how do we cash people up, that'll fix it. Um, poverty is much more sinister than that. And uh, and the experiences we'd had in Springvale and uh, other, you know, teams around Melbourne at that point, um, you know, helped us kind of come up with those kind of definitions. And it's from the Bible, you look at the Old Testament words for poverty and poor, oppression is the most common theme, actually, mm. that lack of freedom to live as God intends. And, and so, you know, but it's another thing when you immerse yourself in 100,000 people. And I, I think part of the impulse for surrender, um, I wrote a book called Surrender All, and it was trying to capture some of that uh, we're not in control of this. You know, we, you know, if we think we, we can sort everything out, if we think we're the messiahs, we're in big trouble. Um, actually, there's a little, um, you know, a bit of sociology about it too, that um, when you talk about magic, you're talking about trying to manipulate the spirits with magic spells or whatever to get things done for you. Mm -hmm. Where real faith is about surrendering all to God. So God can do through us what God wants done in the world. And that distinction became really important for us in Bangkok. And then when I returned to Australia, I think it was my first trip back, the broader church climate was much more about magic. Now we were seeing magic in all kinds of ways in Bangkok, you know, people putting swords through their, you know, through Pins their mouths, through their necks and mouths and uh, trying to manipulate the spirits. Um, but we saw in churches just the same. If you give money to God tonight, you'll get, you know, all your, all your groceries paid for and you'll have more of the presence of God. In your even life, less you know? intense than that. <laughs> if you run this, you know, 30 days of purpose or whatever, these right programs, your church will grow, you mm -hmm. know, like in a more yeah, subtle they way. They were more yeah. like magic mm -hmm. spells yeah. than the, the surrender to discipleship, which and when we've surrendered to Jesus as a person, he takes us to the edge and the margins. Mm. And uh, we recognise we need community then. Mm. And 
sustain this, we need to do it in a place. And those four elements were really important from the early days of surrender. I, I think part of my, we had over 200 people at a, um, a UNO retreat one year, I think it was the first year I was back. And it was kind of a bit of a choice for us. Do we just kind of keep this as a you know thing or do we try to open it up for the whole body of Christ and and um, and not not make it about us? So we were, I think we ran five, the first five surrenders. And it was about trying to convince the not yet convinced. <laughs> it was about trying to get people who were, who were on the sidelines watching to get them on the field. And uh, there was a kind of desperation to it in the early days. I've got to say that we just need to mobilise hundreds of thousands of people to do this. And the Christian populations were gravitating to the safest neighbourhoods and we needed to get them out of there. We needed to get them where Jesus was. And and so um, we, we called on old friends, you know, Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne and all our inspirations, you know, uh, John Smith and that kind of radical discipleship movement. Mm. Uh, chasing the dragon, you know, Jackie Pullinger mm-hmm. came out and scared everybody. She was <laughs> uh, so, so, so part of I, I, I think early on, I, I think too, coming when we're living in Asia, one of the questions that I got from a church leader actually is, um, Australia's you know has, has a lot of Christian people, but why is it so white, given where it is in the region? Mm. And the reason we're so white is. Uh, it hasn't just happened by chance. It's been intentional policy and decisions, colonisation, stolen generations. Uh, white Australia policy. White Australia mm-hmm. policy. These things. White Australia policy was still around in, in you know, in my lifetime. It was 74 when that stopped. So these are recent, mm-hmm. you know, uh, policy decisions. And so I think very early on we kind of, it wasn't quite a bait and switch, but come and hear Tony Campolo. Mm. Uh, you'll leave with the sound of Indigenous voices. It worked uh, for me, Ash. I went to the <laughs> fair. So I went because I saw Tony Gampolo on the... Me and my husband went, oh, Tony's coming. And then I had, I saw John Owen on stage and I'm like, and he's sharing stories. And I'm like, hey, a brown man on stage. Like that was for me as an Asian person going, hey, I've never seen the platform in Christian conferences of other people of colour, of Indigenous voices. Like, Never. So I was like, whoa, this is exciting, like for me. So, yeah, but it worked. It worked, Ash. I think the other thing we were trying to be is really generous as well. We didn't want to be those kind of, I don't know, some Christians on the left are just really stingy. And so, uh, and they talk talk about simple lifestyle, but actually they just don't like spending money. And uh, (laughs) so we wanted to be really kind of generous. So I I still remember when we sold, we, uh, you know, bought a Buddhist temple in Springvale and we sold it. We gave 10% to Indigenous um, ministries and kind of did an open kind of invitation at surrender that year. You know, you know, could could we really bless all the Indigenous ministries that had come that year? And uh, I can't remember, I think it was, you know, 20, 30,000, I think we gave with no strings attached. Tell us how you spend it, but whatever is going to work for your communities. And they'd never had a, a kind of... Um, a blessing like that before normally mm. there's all this kind of you know prove really, to us prove to you. us that you're trustworthy and all that yeah. kind of Rubbish. stuff yeah. so so I, I think those early days of surrender were fun like they were they were stressful though i've got to say uh, <laughs> i don't know how you guys cope with the with the actual kind of conferences and it's still to, stressful Ash. <laughs> well, 
The other thing we, uh, the other harebrained scheme we had was because uh, we used to do them in July because that's when all the urban neighbours of hope workers and we had workers up in the, in the refugee camps by that stage on Taibuma border and New Zealand and everyone would kind of come back in July, work for school holidays and everything else. But it was freezing cold and we're up at you know Belgrave Heights and people are camping and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it was it was a it, it was it, it was a funny. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, uh, I, I, I think it was, uh, um, it, it, oh, I know where I was going. We thought, so we thought, okay, how can we kind of do it more like a campaign that ends with surrender in July? So starting in February, we'd essentially kind of do this uh, call to surrender campaign. It was called Wild Ones initially. Mm-hmm. And so we went to every capital city with a, uh, over a weekend and did like a youth group on Friday night, leaders breakfast, in that was morning. in the days when you had churches on Saturday night at most places yeah, on Sunday we, night. Yeah, we had a seminar yeah. Saturday afternoon, a church often Saturday night, churches on Sunday mornings and evenings, and then, you know, kind of collapse on Monday. Uh, and we'd, we'd go to every kind of capital city with kind of different teams. And and I think one year, I mean, it, I can't remember the numbers, but it was tens of thousands of people we kind of engaged in the lead up to it. So by the time we got to surrender, we were so knackered. We couldn't <laughs> 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 so I don't think that kind of continued long after we kind of gave it up. But it was, uh, it, it, it was. I mean, it was a, such a joy to see. I mean, even to the day, I still hear people who first heard about God's priority for the poor at a surrender conference, and um, and uh, and it helped mobilise them. And I think for me, it was that yeah, not yet convinced people can, rather than just the consumer religion of the day, could we go back to the historic faith of surrendering all to Jesus so that God can do through us what God wants done in the world. And that's, you know, it's great to see a new generation of you guys doing it and taking it much further than we, we could ever do it. And, and, uh, and I think, yeah, I mean, even that the fact that you're all going through being locked down for so long and finding new ways to, to mobilize and engage people is, is such a credit to you all and, and such a heartening thing for us. And that's where we finish part one of our conversation. Over to you. What have you heard? What have you noticed? What have you surrendered? How will you take action? Surrender partners with dozens of organisations and initiatives. Find them and take action at surrender.org.au.